Welcome back to the show, The Roadrunner Show. Time to get started. We're on a mission from God. Oh my God! Okay, it's happening! All right, Buster, what do you do? We're now just a few days away from getting back on the motorcycle. A few days away from hopping on a plane, hoping that I have packed the correct gear in the one and a half bags that I will have, flying back to the bike, somehow getting to the bike, organizing all my stuff, packing it all, and then setting off. The closer I get to the actual deadline, the closer I get to the actual departure of my flight that takes me back to the motorcycle, the more I have to remind myself, the more I have to work through again and again why I'm doing this. I, I keep visualizing the entirety of the trip, the many, many, many miles ahead of me, the many difficulties that I can't even predict, and yet I can anticipate how hard they might be. I keep having to work out why I would put myself through all of that, why I want to be uncomfortable. Wanting to be uncomfortable, as awesome as it sounds, really sucks when you don't have the correct reason. And so again and again, I come back to trying to remind myself why I'm making these decisions and why I'm doing what I'm doing. So it's time for a story. If you spent any amount of time with me, you probably are aware of this particular story in my life as it has a great impact on my daily life, my weekly life, my yearly course of my life over the last couple of years. And really a lot of the decisions that I make come down to reminding myself of this story and then making the decision that is impacted as a product of that story towards doing things more risk prone or more fear ridden or more anxiety inducing rather than taking the safer route. So story time. Everything that I share always starts with a story. A story that I share starts with a story. It's one of my flaws. So when I was 18 years old or roughly 17, 18, it dawned on me, it struck me like a rock hitting my head that suddenly I had to decide where I was going to go to college, where I was going to pursue a degree, how that even worked, what cost of attendance was, what tuition was, how to estimate those things when the website really doesn't give very accurate predictions, what scholarships were, what loans were, how much money I was earning per hour and how many hundreds and thousands of hours I'd have to work to pay stuff off, what debt was, what subsidized versus unsubsidized loans were, what all that different stuff was. I suddenly had to figure it out because up until then, I'd kind of just let everything coast. I'd just done what was I was told to do. I'd done what was given to me. I had become what was given to me. I, had, I didn't even buy my own clothes. I just used whatever was around from my older brothers or what my mom would get me. Everything was given to me. Everything was served to me. There wasn't much that I had to do other than just what I was told. I didn't have to make my own decisions. Sure, I worked and sure, I you know, was a good person and a helpful member of the family. But as far as creating something from nothing, as far as venturing outside of what the realm or the, or the corral of what your family is able to give you in terms of purpose and direction, I had never ventured beyond the fold, so to speak. And so I remember following my mom around one afternoon, I don't know, some Tuesday afternoon, peppering her with questions about college, about tuition, about where to go, about four-year versus junior, about master's, about everything you can imagine when it comes to college and somebody who has no idea what it is other than just reading the front page of some universities. And I'll never forget that I realized at that time that I had to make a decision. I had to decide, was I going to accept 
what was given to me, the answers that were given to me, which were fine. It would have been totally fine to do the small university in somewhere in Illinois that my parents wanted me to go to because it would be easy and simple and cheap and straightforward. Or was I going to try to venture out into this area I had no idea how to do anything within and then create something from nothing, to create an opportunity out of nothing? I'll never forget that moment. Fast forward another year or two, and I've been going to community college, and I decided I was going to go to UCLA, the University of California in Los Angeles. Now, UCLA is a pretty well-known school, and it's a very large school. It's a state school. It's very prestigious. They have high entrance, average entr entrance scores on exams, ACT, etc. They have high average GPA admittances. They have all the things that you can think of when it comes to that particular school might be difficult to get into. But I set my eyes on UCLA for some reason or another. I think I knew a girl who had gone there, and so it kind of got romanticized in my eyes. And I remember the first time I mentioned it to someone, someone in my family or community, it was met with a chuckle and a laugh and a, that's cute, that's a great dream, but why don't you shoot more accurately? Why don't you shoot more lowly, something that is more achievable? And so I, being the Jeremiah that I was slowly developing into, remembered that moment and I, I held on to it and I dug my heels in and I sank my teeth in and I decided, if not just because people said I couldn't, if not just because people laughed when I said I wanted to go to UCLA, I decided I was going to go to UCLA. Now this meant retaking the ACT, which entailed hours and hours and hours and hours of studying and test prep, mostly just doing the practice tests online, the entirety of them over and over again. And this was no big deal for a lot of people who were used to it. But for me, I had taken the ACT once or twice in my life, once when I was really young, twice another time a little later in life, and both times scored, I think I got a 19 on my ACT. And that was good enough. That was what I needed to get into the schools where it didn't really matter. I just needed to have taken the ACT, so it was enough. But when I decided to go to UCLA, I knew that to be competitive on applications and to be competitive for scholarships, I needed a better ACT. So I started teaching myself. I started tutoring myself how to improve my ACT score. I'm not a good test taker. I am full of anxiety. I am all up in my head. I'm unable to make a good decision. I'm paralyzed. I'm freaking out. I'm, I'm just, I'm a terrible test taker. And yet I was determined. And this was the first thing I needed to do. So many, many weeks of studying later, I take the ACT again and I get a 31, which was pretty damn good for my little community. I get a 31, first step towards moving towards this school. Then after hundreds of hours of research, I realize I need to change my residency to in-state and I need to probably transfer in as a junior because it's unrealistic to go in as a freshman when I'm going to be 19 or 20 by that time. And also, it'll be much cheaper and a different way of being admitted, a different criteria for being admitted if I were a transfer. So I think I should try for that. All the while, most everyone in my life was kind of um, smiling and uh, thinking it was cute that Jeremiah was pursuing this strange, far-off incredibly difficult and unlikely goal of going to school at UCLA and getting a degree, an undergraduate degree from UCLA. Well, fast forward another year or so, and I've been working four jobs, and I've been applying to scholarships nonstop, and I've worked out what community colleges I'm going to go to, and I've started working out residency, and I move out to California and live with a family member for a year or so, working full-time, going to community college full-time, and also applying to UCLA, working on essays full-time, to be able to be admitted as a junior. So 
When I get to California, the little town that I moved from in Michigan, it was pretty common for every once in a while a person to go to California, but then they would return with no money and a few tattoos they don't want to talk about, and they would work at the local whatever, and they wouldn't really want to talk about their time in California because it didn't go well, because it's too expensive, and because most people go out there for hard-to-manifest reasons, like mine, to go to school at UCLA. So when I moved out there, when I started the ball rolling, when I started acting on this crazy idea that I was determined to, to see become reality, I knew that most people expected me to fail. And I also knew it wouldn't be a terrible deal if I failed because it's people fail all the time and people came back all the time from doing this thing. People expected me to fail and it wasn't even like they were waiting for it to rub it in my face. They were just waiting for me to see the light. So when I moved to California, I decided... Every single day, every waking moment, I was going to use in a productive way, moving towards my goal of getting into and graduating from UCLA. So from Monday until Saturday night, Monday morning to Saturday night, I would work nonstop, whether it was working for money or applying for scholarships or looking up different ways that I could upgrade my resume and my application, improve it, anything that it took to move even just a tiny little step forward in my goal. So Monday through Saturday was nonstop work, unconditional work, no rest. Sundays, I would close my laptop, I'd close my email, I'd close my phone, and I would go on an adventure. I'd go exploring, I'd go on a hike, I'd go to a museum, I'd take a drive, I'd go on a road trip, something to allow myself a little reprieve from the very heavy schedule that I was setting for myself. I did this for many months, all by myself. Every Sunday, I'd roll out in the morning with some sandwiches, some granola bars, and Alt-J on the radio, and I would just have the time of my life enjoying giving myself a little break. And I never told anyone where I was going. I always just went by myself, explored some forest somewhere, hiked a mountain, did something fun. There wasn't a need to tell anyone because no one really cared and no one needed to know. After a while living in California and doing this, I developed quite the routine. Every Saturday night, I would sit on Google Earth and I would look up cool places to go explore around San Francisco Bay Area. I would search and I would search until I'd find some cool, seemingly unfenced, unregulated area, and then I would go try to find it, hike it, climb it, whatever it might be. Then one Sunday in November, just like any other, I rolled out early in the morning driving north. It was a typically rainy, foggy, fall, wintry day in the bay. Most people weren't out. Most people don't go out when it's foggy and cold and rainy in the bay. They all stay in and watch the latest thing on Netflix. But I was out. I had my old J on. I think I had a sandwich. I had even bought some coffee in rare form. And I was headed north. As I went north, it got more and more remote, fewer and fewer people, until I was so thrilled to be the only car out on the roads far, far north of San Francisco, listening to my music, singing along, and enjoying the landscape just drift by as the fog obscured most everything except for what you could see here and there, maybe 100, 200 yards off into the distance. Rolling fields, fences, farms, everything laying still in the obscuring mist. Finally, I arrived at my location, my destination where I was going to hike. I geared up and I started hiking. I hiked for maybe two, three hours around this peninsula until I came to these cliffs overlooking the Pacific with these beautiful isolated beaches in little coves up against the cliffs, completely cut off from mainland and surrounded by cliffs reaching out into the ocean. And as I wait and I watch as the mist moves and dissipates and reforms, I see that there are sea lions or seals all over the beach down below. And I think this is 
So cool, I bet you no Nat Geo photographer has ever been on a beach like this. So, I do the only thing that is natural for a cocky, undefeated, previously unharmed individual like myself to do, I climb down. Now, these aren't small cliffs. These are maybe 100 foot, 80 feet tall cliffs. So I scramble and climb down. I've climbed a lot of things in my life. I was that kid who would always climb things, climb the stone fireplace, climb the trees, climb on top of the building, whatever it might be. I was always climbing. So I climbed down the cliff, got to the beach and took pictures with the seals and walked around, enjoyed the absolute solitude and the epic nature of this ocean stretching off into the mist and these cliffs reaching out into the ocean. And then this real rocky, pebbly, sandy, beach that's just mine, just mine and the seals. After a while, after, I don't know, 30, 45 minutes, I realized the tide was starting to come in. So I head back to the cliff and then I look up and I have two options. To my right, there's a not quite cliff, more like a very, very steep incline with lots of vegetation and seemingly easy path all the way back up to the top. And on my left is an actual cliff being the person that I was. You can guess where this is going. I chose the actual cliff to try to climb back up. Now, mind you, I don't have gear. I have no special shoes. I have like Sala futsal shoes, uh, indoor soccer shoes, barely any tread, but I'm confident and I'm cocky and nothing's defeated me yet. So there's no no reason to pause. Now, the, the cliffs here are like shale. They're like a California granite looking shale, meaning you can crumble them with enough pressure between your fingertips. You can take the rock face that looks like rock and break pieces off with your fingers, with your hand, without much exertion. Still, I start climbing. The first 20 feet or so of this cliff face is almost solid shale granite rock, the crumbly stuff, which is easy enough to maneuver on. You can just kind of feel where things are more weak. You can take a slide or a break or two because most everything is frictiony and most everything has handholds and footholds, etc. So there's not too much danger. The next 20 feet after that is a mix of dirt and the shale slash rock. So still enough to hold on to, but getting a little bit more sketchy. Finally, the 20 feet above those first 40 feet is almost just purely dirt, no rocks. So fast forward about an hour and I have completely exhausted every muscle in my body to the point where I can barely activate a muscle upon command because everything is so turned to jello. Everything is so utterly exhausted and fatigued. I am bleeding from my neck down from shallow abrasions all across my body because at that point there were so few handholds that I was using my body's friction on the face of the cliff to hold myself in place because I wasn't able to get enough hand and footholds to continue my upward direction. It was here that I finally caved and I finally realized, I finally admitted I was in a very, very bad position and I had put myself there and I was going to need to get myself out of that position. Nobody was coming. Nobody knew where I was. Nobody was there to rescue me. And if I stayed there, nobody was coming. After a little bit of deliberation, I realized that it was probably safer to move back down the cliff than it was to continue upward given that I was going slower and slower and more and more unsure as well as completely exhausted. So I start shimmying and sliding and sliding backwards down this cliff, trying to not slide out of control, but at the same time kind of recklessly sliding backwards and moving backwards, trying to reach down to a lower area on the cliff and get back to the beach. Now, given I was moving backwards, I didn't have much control over the direction I was taking. So eventually I reached a point in the cliff where the face inverted, almost like a bowl, into the, into the cliff, meaning there was no way that I could continue to climb and shimmy down. 
At this point, I was about 20 feet off the base of the beach, which isn't that high. I've dropped from 15-foot rafters in this barn we used to have on our land, and I know it hurts. I know that you either slam your knee into your mouth and you chip your teeth or you bite your tongue or you hit the side of your head with your knee. I mean, most of the time, it's just you crumpling into yourself that really hurts. So I also figured I'm six feet tall and my arms are another maybe two feet, so if I lower myself, I could probably drop the distance to maybe 14 feet. So after thinking this through, I realized if I lower myself, if I hang from my arms, really, I probably only have like a 12 to 14 foot drop to the beach, which really isn't that bad. I might sprain something, I might chip my teeth, I might bite my tongue, but ultimately I won't die, which is what I was afraid of up until that point. So I take a deep breath, I take a last sip from my camelback hanging over my shoulder, I settle my arms around the boulder near me in order to lower myself, and I let all of my weight come off the side of the cliff and rest and settle on my arms and therefore on that boulder. And the instant my weight transfers from spread out on the face of the cliff to gripping the edges of this boulder, the entire boulder pops out of the side of the mountain like an egg out of an egg carton. In moments I'm falling, hurtling down the rest of the 20 feet to the beach, I hit a small outcropping of rock, and the rock that was falling, the rock that came out of the cliff, shatters on top of me. I bounce off and continue on down to the beach, where, somehow, with all of my skill, I hit, with my head, the only rock on the beach. It's all sand, except for this one rock on the beach, which I managed to smash my head into as I impact and land on the beach. Without stopping, I immediately stand and turn around, and am met by a sight that I will never forget. If not the image, then the feeling, the raw, convincing, gripping awareness that I'm going to die. For in front of me is splattered and sprayed blood like you've never seen before except for in a horror movie. So much blood over the entire beach area directly in front of me, all the pebbles, and sprayed up on the rocks behind me. Now, I did not pass out. I knew I hadn't passed out. I knew I had hit the beach and stood up almost immediately. I knew I hadn't actually lost consciousness. So therefore I knew only a matter of seconds had passed since I actually fell. And yet all of this blood was already over the cliff face. Now I've seen enough movies, I've played enough video games to know that when you're losing that amount of blood that quickly, the only thing that's going to happen is you're going to pass out from blood loss and then you will bleed out because no one is there to stem the flow of blood. After a moment standing there observing my surroundings, taking in the fact that I was going to die. I accepted the fact, I turned around, and I walked into the ocean, knowing that the tide was coming in, I would pass out from blood loss at any moment, and my body would wash away and be washed up somewhere in San Diego two or three weeks later. So I sit down in the oncoming surf and just let the waves wash over my waist, waiting. I wait 30 seconds, nothing. I wait a minute, nothing. I wait five minutes and I still have not passed out. By this time, by five minutes in, I'm getting frustrated. I cannot believe that I'm just sitting here waiting to die. And I realize, I think, what if someone were to see? What if somebody were up on the cliffs watching me? What if they were to see that I am literally just giving up, that I'm just sitting here waiting to die? That is the most pathetic thing. That is the most embarrassing. That is the most shameful thing I could possibly think of doing in my life. Just giving up. So I stood up, I walked back to the beach, and I started assessing the situation. 
I couldn't see out of my right eye, which was due to the impact of the fall. I had lost vision in my right eye. I had a hole in my right hand, so that was unusable. My right shoulder was dislocated, and it was a compression dislocation. I don't know the actual term, anterior, posterior, something like that. It was a compression dislocation, which I had never dealt with before. I dislocated my arm before in having it pushed out of socket, but having it pushed into the socket and dislocated in that manner, like a downward dislocation, I'd never done that before. I only knew certain ways to relocate my shoulder and I tried all of them. I realized I was not going to be able to get up this cliff. I was not going to be able to save myself. Nobody knew where I was. I was not going to be able to save myself because no one was coming for me if I did not get my shoulder back in place. So I started draping my shoulder over rocks and attempting to yank it back into place. I tried taking off my shirt and shoving it in between my armpit and trying to slowly ease my shoulder back in place. I tried wading into the water and having the weight of the water or the, the buoyancy of my shoulder in the water raise it back into place. I could not get my shoulder back in place. And if you've ever dislocated anything, you know that a dislocated limb feels like about a six in pain. But when you try to relocate it, you have to go six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and you have to reach ten before it pops back into place. And then you go down to about a three or a four in pain. So you're about a six, which is uncomfortable, but then to relocate it, you have to jack up the pain a lot. You have to go through excruciating pain to bring it back into place, especially if you're doing it by yourself, especially if you don't know what you're doing, and especially if your muscles have tensed up and gotten stuck, and it's very hard to relocate it once that happens. So I'm pacing back and forth on this beach, getting closer and closer to passing out each time that I try with excruciating pain to relocate my shoulder. 30 minutes go by of screaming and crying and re trying to relocate the shoulder with no luck. Each time that I do it, I feel like I'm getting closer and closer to losing consciousness and just falling over right then and there and dying. This entire time that I'm going through this ordeal, that I'm, that I'm thinking this is the only way to get up the cliff is to relocate my shoulder, and yet I can't, I keep thinking, I know I'm going to die. There's no way that I'm not going to die because I can't relocate my shoulder. I'm bleeding out and the tide is going to wash me away and no one knows where I am. I know I'm going to die. And yet I cannot just give up. It's a very interesting paradox. The 100% belief, the, the utter internal truth, the, the awareness, the internalized truth that you are going to die and yet being unable to accept that as reality, as fact, as truth, it's an interesting thing to have to hold in your head at once. And yet it is one of the most valuable things I've ever learned in my life is that I am a stubborn, stubborn person to the point of not giving up in the face of 100% negative odds. After an hour, I'm nearly completely exhausted, emotionally, physically, everything, spiritually. Finally, I think because I'd reached such utter exhaustion, I think my muscles gave up. I think the muscles holding my shoulder out of place, because your muscles are still tense and taut when it's dislocated, I think they gave up and they stopped working, and therefore my shoulder popped back into place simply because there weren't muscles holding it out of place anymore. So with that relocation, with that last attempt and a successful relocation of my shoulder, a small burst of hope came into me. And with that small burst of hope, a small burst of energy. So I went back to the cliff this time to the vegetated, green, more steep incline than cliffside, and I began to climb. And I climbed as fast and as hard as I could, thrilled to be doing something other than pacing up and down 
that lonely, isolated beach. When I reached the top, I rolled up over the top of the edge of the cliff. I'll never forget thinking, I might have a heart attack in this moment because my heart was beating so incredibly fast. I think because I didn't breathe the entire time I was scrambling up and yanking out vegetation and getting to the top of this cliff. I think I didn't breathe. So by the time I got to the top, my heart was racing out of control. And I remember thinking, wouldn't it be hilarious if I died of a heart attack after surviving that ordeal? But thankfully, I didn't. I stood up. I was carrying my right arm that had been dislocated in my left arm, kind of cradling it as a temporary sling. The vision in my right eye had started to return. The hole in my right hand was pretty much hopeless, but by this time my adrenaline was so renewed as a product of getting up over the edge of the cliff that I was singing and I was dancing and I was capering my way back to my car, thinking the worst is behind me. So I get back to my car, I get inside, I back up, I put it in drive, and I start driving. I drive until I find another car coming the opposite direction. So I block the road with my car, and I get out. Now remember, this is a classic thick, thick fog rolling in from the Pacific over California day. So you really can't see further than 50 to 100 yards maximum. Really, most of the time, it's more like 30 to 50 yards. So as I'm driving, suddenly there are headlights in front of me, and I block the small road in the mountains with my car, get out of my car, and approach this other car on foot, just praying that they don't back up and drive away at this crazy ordeal of this man stumbling towards them. God only knows what I look like at that point. I still haven't seen myself. Thankfully, they don't go anywhere. I think just out of petrified fear. I walk up to the driver's side window. I say, hello, how are you today? And I am met with two very blank, very terrified, very confused faces and no words. I say, Excuse me, but I I think I might need somebody to help me reach the hospital because I'm not sure I will actually make it. I don't know if I will pass out or not. And I stand there another one, two, three seconds. Suddenly the man turns to his wife in the passenger seat, yells something in German, and gets out of his car and begins to fumble and usher me back to my car. As I would later find out, I think he told her to follow follow behind with their car and that he would take me in my car. That is how I met Frank. Frank was an engineer from Germany whose company had just been acquired by Apple, and he and his family of two, a small daughter in the back that I didn't know about yet, and his wife had only been in the States for four months. Welcome to America, Frank. So Frank and I are driving now. Frank is driving my car, and I am in the passenger seat, and Frank thinks I'm about to die. Frank doesn't realize it's already been over an hour since this all happened. It's already been over an hour since the initial bleeding started. At this point, I'm pretty confident that I'm going to be fine. Fine in terms of, if we get to a hospital in time, I think I'll survive, but not collapsing and dying right then and there. I think I have a few more hours in me. So we're talking, and I'm trying to relax him. I'm trying to convince him that I'm lucid and that I'm okay as much as I can be okay in that state. So we're talking about the university system in Germany versus the US and the drinking age and how that affects university and how it affects kids starting to drink at 16 and getting over with the worst part of it before they get in college. And then they're talking about love and free healthcare, all this different stuff. We're talking about the differences in our country, about what it means to have a family, about what it means to love one person rather than be in relationships all the time. Finally, we reach cell service. We pull over and Frank starts dialing 911 to get an ambulance. (laughs) And uh, I remind Frank quickly and um, much to his surprise that we're in America and healthcare is not free. And the likelihood that the ambulance that would come is one that is associated with whatever my plan allows is pretty low. And therefore I would be sacked with or, or burdened with quite 
a bill for that ambulance ride. So I asked him if he was willing, would he be willing to drive me the rest of the way to the hospital, about another hour or two. With much surprise and a lot of anger, Frank agreed to drive me the rest of the way. So we get to the hospital. As we're pulling up, Frank explains to me, Jeremiah, I don't know how it is here, but in our hospitals in Germany, when you enter an ER like this and you look like you look, they have to decide if they're going to activate trauma unit in order to save your life or whether you will be okay with just regular service. When you go in there, if they activate trauma unit, which it doesn't look like you need because you're lucid, you never passed out, and it's been multiple hours since the accident, if they activate trauma unit, the price of your bill is going to quintuple. It's going to become incredibly more expensive. So when you go in there, you need to make sure they understand that you are okay in the sense of the word that you're not going to die right now. <laughs> so I'll never forget. I walk up the ramp, not the stairs, slowly into the ER room. Those double sliding doors open up in Marin County. There's a full waiting room of people that are mostly on their cell phones. But I'll never forget the first few people who looked up at me and just gaped silently while following me with their eyes as I slowly entered the ER waiting room and walked up to the front desk. I stood there for a couple of seconds, waiting for someone to look up from their iPads and their schedules and all the different things that these nurses are doing behind the counter, running this entire busy waiting room. I say, hello, how are you guys doing? No response. Hello, I think I need a wheelchair. They told me to get a number. And I said, no, I think I need a wheelchair right now. By then, they were getting a little upset. So the first one looked up. I'll never forget the solid eight seconds of silence as the first nurse, the second nurse, the third nurse, the fourth nurse, all slowly looked up and gaped at what I didn't know yet, but what was a terrifying sight of dried and caked blood all over my face and all over my body, of tattered clothes, of flaps of skin hanging off my head, and a smile on my face. Suddenly, at the drop of a hat, all hell broke loose. They finally stood up, all four of them rushing around, grabbing a wheelchair, grabbing a bracelet, calling, pushing buttons, the doors swing open, doctors are coming out. Suddenly I'm in a wheelchair, headed back into the ER, surrounded by, I don't know, 15 different people. I don't know how many are doctors, how many are nurses, but I'm being poked and prodded and asked questions. And when did you pass out? Oh, I, I didn't pass out. How long were you unconscious? Oh, I wasn't unconscious. Do you remember the entire event? Or how, how much is a gap in your memory? Oh, I remember the entire event. So how long were you actually unconscious? Oh, I wasn't unconscious. The entire time trying to smile, trying to crack jokes, trying to be lighthearted because I was trying to convince them that I was okay. Finally, they get me in my own bed. They're not entirely convinced that I am not on the edge of death, but at the same time, I think I had gotten the message across that I had not passed out. I was many hours out from the actual event. This was not a recent event, and that I was entirely present as much as I could be in that time mentally. So I get my three or four nurses cutting my clothes off, putting me into my bed, trying to put me in a robe, putting blankets underneath my head to stem the flow of blood from my head trying to understand where the worst wounds were and where I needed to be careful and what needed to be cleaned and what needed to be scanned. And so began the next 14 hours of scanning and cleaning and dried blood flaking off and hospital blankets filling with my blood leaking out of my body. I don't know how many hospital blankets I went through because they can't seal you up until they've cleaned and scanned you to make sure there's no internal bleeding and also to make sure they don't seal you up with gravel and dirt and all the different things that were in my wounds. Finally, after 140 sutures and stitches later, there was no internal bleeding. 
There was no permanent damage that could be seen. My vision in my right eye had returned. The hole in my hand would eventually heal. My shoulder was kind of fucked, but at the same time, at least it was still in place. I seemed to be okay. They wrapped me up. They wished me the best, and they sent me on my way after 14 hours in an ER. For the first couple of weeks after this accident, my life was very different. I was very appreciative of what it meant to be alive. I was very appreciative of what it meant to have working limbs, to have vision from both eyes, to have arms and fingers and legs and hands that worked, to have muscles that worked. I was very appreciative of what it meant to be who I was and what it meant to be alive. After a few more months, I was appreciative, but I was starting to forget. I was starting to get back into the groove of life. After a year, I had nearly completely forgotten this event that was so important to me, this event that was life-changing, this event that was, by all means, should have been the end of my life. I remember the doctor telling me in the ER, after everything settled down, he told me, Jeremiah, by all accounts, from what we see here, from your injuries you sustained, and from what you told us, the only reason you remained conscious and the only reason you survived was because you would not give up, because you decided you were not going to die. I should have died on that beach if it were not for how completely stubborn I am. And the true tragedy of all of this is that I can go so often without remembering this event, without remembering that I should be grateful to be alive. As I get closer to this motorcycle trip, as I steep myself in doubt, as the doubt rolls in on top of me like the fog on that day, I have to remind myself why I make decisions the way I do. And a huge part of that is reminding myself of that one day back in 2015 on a very foggy, rainy, cold day in San Francisco area, the day that I should have died. This is one of the chief reminders that I use in my life to remember that the small things that I let bother me, the stress, the social anxiety, the comparison game that we all play, the stress about money, the stress about purpose, all the things that we let bury us in the day-to-day -day life of what it means to be alive these days, I can use this story, I can remember that I should have died and I can move forward. So when people ask why I'm doing what I'm doing, why are you making decisions the way that you're making them, I almost always turn to this story because this is an orienting experience in my life that allows me to push one step further down the path that seems like what I want to be doing with the rest of this life that I'm so blessed to have, that I'm so lucky to have, that I shouldn't have by all means. As I am about one week off from getting on that motorcycle, I can feel the anxiety rising, even just mentioning it right now, even just imagining it right now. And the way I battle that is with this story, the story of when I should have died. This is what is pushing me forward. This is what re is reorienting me around my desire to get back on that bike and my desire to continue this journey to Argentina. I almost wish that everyone else could have an experience like this, some sort of traumatic near-death experience that allows them to refocus and to reorient at any given point in their life how they're viewing whatever it is that they're going through or about to go through. I'm not convinced that it takes a near-death experience for this type of reorienting perspective to be effective. I think even just an entertainment of the idea that death is just as a part of your life as it is a part of mine. It's coming. It's coming for you just like it's coming for me. It just so happens that it came for me way earlier than for most people, and that I should have died and that I didn't. 
having had that experience, it's almost like I have a cheat card. But at the same time, I think people's ability to be able to focus on the fact that they're going to die enables them to do the same thing that I do in alleviating the stress, in understanding the reason why I make certain decisions that seem contrary to what other people might make. I think we can do this if we allow ourselves to understand that death is closer than we think it is and that that's okay. In fact, it's a beautiful, wonderful thing because it means you can go out tomorrow and you can see the world with eyes that understand how beautiful it is that the wind is blowing, that the grass is growing, that there are people around you, that society is functioning more or less that you have people that love you, that you can grow, that you can change, that you can meet new people, that you can create new things, that you can enjoy what it means to do nothing, that you can enjoy what it means to be busy, that you can enjoy stress and happiness, that you can enjoy love and hate, that you can enjoy anger and satisfaction, all of these different experiences that it means to be alive, everything that it means to be conscious. You can love in every little bit of all of that when you realize that it's not going to last forever. You can relax a little bit more when you're answering that email that you've retyped seven times when you realize life is not going to last forever. You can take a deep breath, gulp down that stress, and say the hard thing with your loved one, with the person that you care about, with your significant other, with your friend, whatever it might be, when you realize life is not going to last forever. You can take that step that you've been procrastinating on for years, whatever it might be, a small step towards buying your first house, a small step towards finishing your education, a small step towards getting a, a raise or a, a, a promotion at your job, for talking to the beautiful barista that you get your coffee from every day, whatever it might be, you can take that first step that you've been procrastinating on when you realize your life is not going to last forever. So as I get closer and closer to the day when I get on that airplane and fly all the way back to my motorcycle in California, I remind myself, Jeremiah, you're doing this. You're making the decisions you're making. You're living the way that you're living because your life is not going to last forever. Nice. It's a bridal shower for guys. A guy shower. An hour-long shower with guys.